Uh, welcome everyone to the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library and our event tonight uh, to introduce those of you who are not familiar with and to engage with those of you who have read uh, the new book um, by Nurse T, um, A Pandemic Nurse's Diary, published by Tim Sheard, who is here with us this evening as well. So the basic plan is we are recording this um, and it will appear eventually on the Eastside Freedom Library's YouTube page. And so if you're worried about uh, your profile and being seen, um, you should stay on the down low and keep your video and mic off. Um, you can even change your name if you would like. Um, but we will do the recording. Um, we may or may not use the after presentation conversation depending on how that seems to go, but probably. Um, so the plan tonight is uh, those of you who are audience members um, have been muted for the duration of the presentations. And uh, the plan is uh, that Nurse T um, and Tim Sheard will speak a little bit about the book and the project uh, that brought the book into being. And then we will hear from several individuals who have read the book in order to participate in this conversation. And uh, those individuals are Sarah Lake, uh, who is a retired uh, RN, a former board member at the Minnesota Nurses Association, and a current board member at the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, Renee Vaughn, who is a former board member at the Eastside Freedom Library and an aficionado of the musical instrument, the Nickel Harpa. And uh, Renee works in a long-term care facility and one of the reasons she is no longer on our board is that the demands of her job once the pandemic set in um, began to weigh too heavily on her time and energy. And it's, a, it's really a treat to see Renee and to have her with us tonight. Um, we will also be hearing from Najaha Musa, uh, who is a medical resident about to become an MD, um, an Eastsider, um, someone who grew up uh, in Ethiopia um, in an Oromo community and then um, lived in a refugee camp and then came here to Minnesota um, and is going to be, I'm in line to be her first patient when she begins to have patients of her own. Um, and we will be hearing from Mary Turner, who is the president of the Minnesota Nurses Association, um, and uh, obviously an RN uh, in her own right. Um, so we have asked them to read the book uh, and to prepare some comments and perhaps questions for Nurse T. So we'll start with Tim and Nurse T, then we'll hear from our reader discussants, then we'll give Nurse T an opportunity to respond if she wishes, and then we will allow all of you who have joined us this evening 
um, to ask questions or make comments. Um, you can use the chat function in Zoom. Um, if you are watching us via Facebook, you can use the comment function on Facebook. Um, and then uh, we will eventually, to foster the goal of creating community, um, we will unmute everybody and allow for some kind of chit chat and, and visiting uh, at the end of the program. So, um, Tim, do you want to start, or Nurse T, do you want to start? Either one of you, Tim tell us start. about this book. Yeah. Yes, Tim definitely can start. Oh, thank you, Nurse T. <laughs> uh, let, let me just say a couple of things uh, quickly. Uh, I'm a retired nurse, and when the pandemic uh, hit uh, into March, and I began to hear the horror stories, Nurse T got in contact with me. Uh, she has read a number of my mystery novels, and she knows me uh, through my writing, and uh, we become friends. And she was telling me some stories from uh, her experience in the ICU in a, in a New York City hospital. And the stories were really terrifying. They were dramatic and sorrowful and scary. And uh, so we, we, we exchanged you know, our ideas and our thoughts and our hopes for, for a, a few weeks. And then at one point, Nurse T, since she knows I'm a writer, she said, Tim, when this is all over, you've got to, um, you've got to write about what happened. And I said, no, no, Nurse, <laughs> you, it's your story, you write it. And since I've uh, had the opportunity to mentor probably several hundred writers over the years through the National Writers Union and have worked with writers, working class writers uh, all over. Uh, we were able to meet and I was able to help her shape her story, uh, develop her writing and bring her story together. So it was a wonderful experience, a wonderful collaboration that was full of uh, respect and love between us, I think. And, and uh, I think one of the most satisfying uh, editing experiences I've ever had. So I'm, I'm enormously proud of what she did, not just as a nurse, but also as a writer too, to mm -hmm. break into this field and to become a published writer. So um, perhaps she could, Nurse T could say a little bit about the writing process, mm -hmm. you know, why she, why she agreed, you know, why did, why did you agree to <laughs> get this new, try this new endeavor of writing? Yeah, it was definitely a new adventure. Um, I want to thank everyone giving the opportunity to talk about um, uh, how we did this experience. I am, this year will be 25 years working in the ICU and Tim and I uh, know each other. We worked with each other for over 10 years, right? Tim, 10 years, more than that, probably. And uh, we've always swapped stories at the bedside and discussed things together and we wanted to, uh, I said, one day we'll be able to uh, write this uh, book together. And I didn't think it was going to be like this kind of a book, to be honest with you. Um, I think being able to uh, get in contact with him and talk about these untold experiences, what we went through during the pandemic, the peak of the pandemic, and how we were able to, I mean, everything was unknown. And um, working with our colleagues, uh, together and having Tim be able to put this on paper and let everyone know what we went through. 
And I think that was really significant. And I was really appreciated what Tim uh, was able to work with me to do. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what sort of what 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 stories first like triggered this idea that you might write? What what, what was a story that that you felt you needed to tell that you needed the world to, to hear about? And there's T. What 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 sort I of think, story? Yeah, I think the main thing is is knowing that we work in a community poor community hospital in New York, and we were already in the beginning prior to the pandemic. This is, we had lack of supplies, equipment was always outdated, um, staffing was always been an issue. So to know even hints of even an idea of a pandemic, we weren't even prepared for that. We were never really trained in a warlike condition. We put ourselves in the front line, but I just felt like Tim needed to get, get us to know, let everyone know what we were going through. We weren't prepared for this. Everyone was put in the front lines, inadequate staffing, inadequate supplies. And if we have all these executives who do very well and not do their part, we were doing our part. We were doing everything to save everyone's lives and save our lives at the same time and be safe. And then that's the one thing I think that's how I, I felt like our stories need to be told because um, we put we, we collaborate together. We were together as staff looking at each other's eyes and saying, you know what, we're trained to do this, but not in this type of environment, this warlike situation. And that's why we were saying um, people need to know these stories. Uh, pretty much uh, lack of funding. We were, uh, there are other hospitals who have the funding, but we, we didn't, we weren't prepared for that. Yeah, I, I know you you were you were staying you were put up you and your colleagues were put up in a local hotel. Yes. You, you were working twelve hour shifts day after day, sometimes four or five days in a row. Yes. And I know uh, you've told so many stories about just mm -hmm. going to work was so difficult. I know there's a story you told me, writing with a, a colleague, another nurse, and together. Uh, you know, and taking an Uber ride uh, to the hospital, and when mm -hmm. you first saw the roof the of the hospital, your yeah. friend broke down and cried every time, every morning. Yes. Um, the hot, we were lucky enough that the union was able to put us up in a local hospital. We didn't see our family for four months. And we were actually in the hotel with uh, firefighters from Texas. And we were able to um, meet and swap some stories. But we knew we were going to go back out there. And when we were coming back to the hospital, my colleague and I, I mean, we saw containers. Once we opened up that car door, we could smell the bodies, the rotting bodies. She, I knew she just froze when she saw the building because we were coming into COVID bombs because there was no proper ventilation. We were wearing the same um, uh, PPEs for the whole 12 hour shifts. And then we were like, in the beginning, our executives were telling us, you know, it's, you know, it's going to be just droplet precautions. Don't wear the N95s. We're, we know when it's something unknown, even way before this pandemic, we always prepare wearing the proper protection until we get that ruled out. It was the opposite. And I actually had an executive tell me to take it off in the beginning. And I said, no, you aren't going to have to take it off my face because we don't know what we're dealing with. And that was the type of treatment we were having in the beginning, really um, 
disregarding how it's not that serious, but our patients, we're, they were dying. We felt helpless not knowing what type of treatment or protocol to follow. And we were our doctors, we had attendings who you could see it on their faces. They didn't know what their answers when we asked them these questions. So knowing that kind of going back and forth for four months, it was traumatic, traumatic for our patients to go through, for their families calling, only could only call on phones. They could not visit their family members, only through the emergency room ramps. We were just told to tell them to say goodbye because we don't know what was going to happen. I mean, how, that's not like we're usually used to. We're always expecting for families to come in and visit and go through the process, the grieving process or the healing process. That was, we never, we never had that opportunity during this the peak of the pandemic. So um, it was a traumatic experience and I can imagine how it's still happening now. Uh, if you hear in India, that's what they're going through. All over parts of the world are going through that, but um, we weren't well equipped for this kind of experience. Well, there were many, many stories that you told me, Nurse T, that were so impressive, um, so moving and so inspiring. And one of the things that struck me is that the nurses went back to work day after day. They yes. didn't quit. They no. didn't turn away. You know, they didn't they, they didn't shirk the responsibility and they didn't sign up. No. <laughs> they didn't sign up for, you know, uh, a warlike job. You know, they didn't no. sign up for, to, you know, uh, but they came back. Tell, tell us about what was it that uh, enabled or kept the nurses and the other staff, the orderlies, the housekeepers, the ward clerk, the morgue attendants, the doctors, what the medical students, what, what is it that kept mm -hmm. them coming back day after day, given the, the fear and the danger that you were facing? We just knew, even though, you know, everyone has a group of people that you work with and everyone has different personalities and everyone knows, but when we looked at each other's eyes and we knew that this was really scary. This is something we didn't know. We came for each other because we knew if I'm leaving this facility from four crash cards, crash cards still open and being used and to come back with the same four um, in the unit, we knew we wanted to come back and help each other out because we did not want to be left like that. So it was like more like a family. At the same time, we work with each other for years. And even with the new ones, this is just a traumatic experience you don't want to be doing on, on your own. And when you knew you were working with someone, you, you just a plastic wall next door, you want to go in and help them because if you can get a chance to help each other, that's what would make us do for the 12 hours, sometimes even more than 12 hours. It was just code after code. And that was really traumatic for all of us to do and to deal with. Um, just uh, the camaraderie and knowing, even with the respiratory therapist coming in, all it was just out in, uh, announcements over the um, the PA system looking for an oxygen tank. Uh, they were just back and forth, and you could see it in their eyes, like just trying to get oxygen for everybody. And that's when we knew and found out that our system was not uh, prepared for the oxygen capacity of the demands. And how could that be in New York? That's like unheard of. So tanks would be rolled in for us. So we had portable tanks and it's like, this is where we expected to at least have that. And could deaths could have been prevented, yes. But in the delay of the system and uh, you know, the system failed us when we were doing our best. And that's what was really shocking for all of us. Yeah, I know that the 
eventually the administration did offer some psychological counseling, counseling by video or by TV, uh, which was helpful. And I know many people suffered some um, terrible emotional trauma from this. Tell us, yes. if you would, just one minute, like, when did it strike you? I know you told me that it was, I know that you were a very strong woman, right? Mm -hmm, very thank you. strong. You were this. I wouldn't have been able to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it with like my colleagues, my, my coworkers, my co-nurses, um, my, my doctors that we work with. Uh, we, I do it together as the group. And um, the support that they provided for us was really, I didn't, in the beginning, I didn't think we needed it. We're like, no, you know, we're okay. But you know what, when you hear other people's stories and what they experience, you're like, you're wondering, you know, I'm experiencing the same thing. And it was healing. And it was very nice that we were able to meet. And we would even come home and want to get back on that call to hear what everyone's stories and what they experience. And it was nice knowing what they're going through and their families, what their families are experiencing when they uh, know that their family member is going through this pandemic. And for, for I didn't think it was gonna be that bad. And when they talk about PTSD, it's real. And I mentioned it to you, Tim, earlier, I think saying, I haven't been to church in over, over a year. And I felt like, okay, it's, it's time, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's not as uh, everyone's more distancing and wearing their mask and being aware. And then actually going in back last week for the first time and hearing the music and it just hit me. It was just flashes. I saw everyone's tattoos. I saw their blue fingers. I saw their blue lips. I could even actually smell and taste the the chlorine and the disinfectant they were doing to clean the rooms. I, I, I couldn't believe, like, I can't believe I'm experiencing this right now. I actually had to leave and take a breath uh, for a minute and say, this is, this is what PTSD is. And what we went through was really traumatic. And I was talking about it with my colleagues and it's like, you know, and I can't believe I, I actually cried in church and didn't think I would go through that. But I, I, I saw the tattoos. I saw the fistulas on the arm. That's, that's what flashed in my mind. And I'll never forget those patients coming in and just said and gave a kiss to their family member. And that was it. They didn't make it. And it's just like, you know, it's just so traumatic. Well, why don't we start to hear from the people who have read the book mm -hmm. um, and how it, the things that it makes come to their minds about their own experiences and the experiences of their colleagues. Um, Renee, could I ask you to go first, please? Sure. Uh, I might need a minute, though, after listening to all of that, Nurse T. That was really impactful, and um, thank you for <laughs> sharing what you did um, and what you went through. And actually, Peter, I think I would like just a minute. Is there someone else that could go first? Sarah, Sarah Lake, how about you? Sure, and I really appreciate uh, your honesty, Renee. Um, so yeah, I was totally taken um, by the book. Um, so grateful. Um, and just, you know, uh, courageous truth tellers and questioners. You know, I love that it started with talking about, you know, walking into a war zone and the chaotic nature of just, you know, jumbled crash carts and body bags. And, you know, I worked in a very unmanageable trauma center at one point. And, and so, you know, as a critical care nurse, 
can just really relate to, you know, so many of the facts. And I love that, you know, I'm always struck with beginnings and endings. And I love at the end on page 120, where it says, come on, America, get your act together, you know, wear a mask, you know, it, it's so basic. And so, you know, um, I, I loved, you know, just immediately asking the question, you know, what about a fan? I love the COVID bomb. I mean, not loved it, but just really cutting to the truth of, you know, the core of the issue, um, you know, not having the long IV extensions. I did a lot of, um, you know, monitoring patients and MRIs. I mean, you just can't, it, you know, it's hard, you know, to imagine, you know, again, it, you know, you're going in and you have that, you know, sad little dirty PP, you know, N95 for the day, but every time you open the door, that idea of a COVID bomb. And so, and the idea of managing a, a patient with on a respirator without an IV drip, you know, like I can't even, you know, again, I've worked in some really bad situations, but, you know, day in, day out, um, you know, this idea, and, and I love where you said, you know, patients are dying of poverty. And, um, you know, that that really struck to the core of it. And for me, because, you know, whether it was not having access to the remdesivir, you know, the trial drug, it, you know, the, the you know, antiviral, um, because again, poor, you know, and, and the idea that we, you know, in this country, we make so many decisions based on, you know, net worth. You know, you either are, have a lot of money, and we'll bend over backwards, or we don't care. You know, I mean, I saw the corporatization of healthcare in 30 years, and it really made a big difference. You know, the overtime being mandated, you know, the, the patients being held in ambulances, emergency departments, the OR, the PACU, I've been in all those situations, you know, at a trauma center, that's what happens. And, you know, the housekeepers being laid off, you know, because of cost cutting, you know, and, you know, I just did a bunch of reading to kind of, you know, flesh out kind of the, the background. So, you know, that was the foreground, you know, and a brilliant strategy to just have a diary, you know, day after day, you know, what's changing, what's not changing. You know, I was involved with the union as a shop steward, you know, on the board and, and, you know, I would tell people just write it down because there's always like ongoing stuff. And if we don't write it down, it just becomes part of this blur. And as much of, you know, of course, you know, PTSD, there's no question. And yet I believe that you're committing this to paper and I hear the strength in your voice still, you know, it was part of your journey of healing. And, and that's where, you know, one of my set, you know, kind of part of what led me to retirement was I really felt like we'd lost, and I, and I don't believe it's the nurse's fault. You know, I have on my Bernie shirt because I feel like he was the champion, you know, for nurses values, you know, for sort of saying that we have worth, you know, that we're, you know, we care and no one cares about us, you know, no one meaning administration, you know, yeah, patients and families, they get it you know, and they're so grateful, you know, they may not really understand what we do besides everything, but, but they get that we're trying really hard in a fragmented system that, you know, where the, the primary resource, which is money, you know, really how I see it being used is punitive, 
you know, we're mean. We're mean in this country. We're mean to people of color. We're mean to women. We've known this. We have so much data on these subjects, you know, from a union standpoint, from a professional standpoint. I mean, NNU has done great work in terms of, you know, workplace violence and unsafe staffing and how that absolutely impacts patients' outcomes, you know. So, so I just was really you know, and, and I love what you talked about, you know, that veteran nurses and experienced physicians have the greatest ability to control the terror, you know, because that's, you know, you know, what you're talking about in terms of the PTSD is that conflict, you know, when you walk back in there every morning to start or every, you know, whenever your shift starts, it's like, knowing, you know, you don't have enough weapons, you know, you don't, you're going to battle you know, and you don't have the weapons, you know, you don't have the long IV tubing, you don't have the drips for the ventilator, you know, and the money's not there and administration, you know, is doing their best with nothing, you know, and that's the, that's the system that we've absolutely purposely created, I believe, you know, one on the one end profit, but on the other end, you know, why don't we have Medicare for all? I've heard the arguments. It's because we don't want to level the playing field. We don't want to be decent to anyone that, you know, is worth X amount, you know, less than this amount, you know, and that is cruel, you know, and, you know, some of the stuff I've recently, and I'll finish here, you know, heard about, you know, kind of the George Floyd stuff is, you know, to be sort of just disinterested, you know, it's not even hate. It's not even like, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, meh, you know, like, I don't, I just like, what, really, you know, like, and, and I think that's exactly where nursing, you know, is at that, you know, what I tune into is that complete disinterest. And yet, you know, we can do all the bells and whistles, but people need care, you know, in their moment of need, that's what they're really, you know, that's the difference. They don't know what we do, but they know when we try to, you know, communicate or just say, yeah, this is kind of a screwed up deal, you know, and, you know, that's, you know, that's what I think. And thank you so much for the book. I've read a lot of books and it was brilliant. It is brilliant. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you thank you. Thank you. Um, Renee, shall we bring it back to you? Thank you for that moment. I needed that. Um, one of the ways that Nurse T's book has helped me immensely is that my work environment is very different. It's long-term care, um, but we don't have a lot of the conversations with one another that you were talking about that are healing. So being able to read your book and the experiences themselves weren't um, similar, of course, but the feelings were, and that was so helpful for me. So thank you for that. Um, the one thing that Sarah had mentioned was the doing with nothing. And you had mentioned that too in the beginning where it was, um, we had those same experiences that not having any masks, not having anything. And when our site first had COVID infection in March of last year, um, the infection control would come and it was that same experience that Nurse T had in her book where it was sort of that gotcha kind of feeling instead of feeling helpful. And 
um, with the PPE doing something with nothing, I had a friend that just made masks out of old bed sheets. And that's what we had between us. Our barrier was Judy's bed sheets. Um, but that's what we did. Um, some of the thoughts I had on the book were that the biggest thing in the beginning of your book, Nurse T, was the ambiguous anxiety that was just constant. And it was pressure all the time, not knowing what is it I'm looking for? And I remember the Clorox. I had to Clorox everything in the place two times a day. And I didn't know, is this helping it? Am I just, just doing this for naught? We didn't know if it was droplets because we aren't nurses there. At least I, I'm not, I should say. There are nurses there. Um, we didn't know when everybody on our staff just started to get sick, we didn't know, is this COVID? Is this not COVID? Is this the flu? Is it just a regular cold? And it wasn't until we finally got one resident, their son, I think it was, um, was able to get him tested. And then once we got one person tested, we were able to get everybody tested. Um, but in fact, the state just said, assume everybody has it. We, we don't have any testing yet. So it was ambiguous that whole time. And that was so much anxiety there. Um, one thing too that Sarah had talked about um, was a little bit about one of the frustrations that I felt quite often was when people would call us heroes or something. And I know that was always so well-intentioned but it always felt to me when they would slap hero stuff on there, not people in the community, not the kids that made cute cards because that was adorable. But when corporations would, that always felt um, a little bit like saying I had a calling to do what I was doing. And that to me feels a little bit like we're gonna not pay you as much, but we're gonna call you a hero or we're going to, um, I lost train of thought, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'll just wrap up with a little bit about what Nurse Teeth said too, is she stayed there for the group. And that was something that I experienced too, was we got to see the absolute best in my coworkers and everybody just had to stop what you were doing and you started to take care of people in ways that you never thought you would before and do things you never signed up to do, but that's what you had to do during the time and when it was widespread throughout our community. Um, you also saw the worst in a few family members, but again, it was different because we were their caregivers and uh, they weren't patients to us. They lived there. So it was like, all your grandpas and grandmas were sick and you had to try and care for them, but you didn't know how. So thank you. And, and one more thing, thank you very much for that last part in your book where it was about self-care and how to um, try to heal some of these things and different exercises. And there were so many to choose from. For, so if one didn't work, you could try and pick another. And that piece um, is very helpful to chunk off some of the past year. So thank you for thinking of that and putting that in there.
Thank you, Renee. Thank you. Great. Um, Najaha, would, would you go next, please? Sure, thanks, Peter. And thank you, Nurse T and Tim, for publishing this timely uh, work, uh, shedding light on the everyday struggles of frontline healthcare workers during the viral pandemic. Um, as an incoming resident physician, reading this work, I was really struck by the vivid and accurate descriptions of the hustle to save patients' lives, particularly patients who are in the intensive care units. Um, furthermore, one thing that I really appreciated was the frankness um, with which Nurse T discussed the underlying factors um, that uh, disproportionately um, affected the African-American patients um, and uh, COVID-19 and their underlying conditions for cause of death, uh, particularly um, in the chapter titled Cause of Death, Nurse T uh, writes, in my silence, I wish that the attending physician could write in the death certificate under cause of death, hospital poverty due to refusal of the government to provide adequate resources and staff for impoverished, impoverished patients of color. I mean, this speaks loud and clearly to the systemic injustice that many patients of color, uh, particularly African-Americans face in the healthcare system. Um, and most recently, we've seen a lot of news coverage on patients who are dying unjustly in the hospital, particularly because of these uh, systemic injustices. So I really appreciated Nurse T's frankness with which she discussed this topic. Uh, with I'm sure it's very up uh, politicized and polarized today, but really when it comes down to it, it's about humanity and it's about patients' rights. It's about protecting patients when they're most vulnerable, especially in the hospital, especially in the health, uh, in the ICU. Um, the reader also appreciates the compassionate care um, shown by ICU nurses uh, like Nurse T. Um, and uh, one of the things that really struck me was how they were able to deal with delirium um, and patients who were really flustered um, when they're mechanically ventilated under uh, without very much uh, anesthesia or sedating medications. And the fact that the hospital was running out of these first line agents for sedation and mechanical ventilation was a, quite a shock to me, uh, as that's something you see in third world countries. And so when you think about you know, the psychological trauma, not only uh, for the nurses who are caring for these patients, but also the patients themselves, it begs the question, you know, what kinds of psychiatric traumas will we see in the future? And I guess my question to, to all of you and to nurse team in particular is how can we as um, frontline healthcare workers, particularly primary care doctors, care for these uh, uh, COVID long haulers and uh, patients who have survived the ICU stay? Thank you so much for writing this work. Thank you. Um, when your uh, answer to your Question. I can hopefully be able to answer that. When you're saying what we notice is a lot of the long haulers are coming back into our ICUs. There is no um, particular uh, algorithm or protocol. When we know, we ask them in the question in their interview when they come into our ICU, have you been exposed or did you experience an infection or a virus during the time of the pandemic? And they say yes. But when our physicians, when we tell them this could be uh, chronic um, fatigue or uh, symptom of them from their ongoing uh, viral experience, they disregard it. 
know the patient is negative, we're not going to go any protocol of uh, uh, COVID um, treatment, but we know they're coming back with these symptoms. And if physicians put that on their radar when they're having this um, uh, response, even 90 days after the infection, they're not doing any sort of uh, blood work to find out if they have antibodies, is their immune response still flaring? They disregard it. And they say, well, you know, the pay, we're gonna treat only their symptoms. And it's really just supportive care. And when we know there is something going on and we're not treating the underlying um, presentation of symptoms. And if physicians put that in their agenda as priority coming, it's particularly the ICU. By the time their course in ICU, they end up with multi-organ failure and we see the path. So definitely if they have a way of maybe drawing blood draws and doing a profile on these patients, absolutely. But right now they're disregarding it. Negative patient, we're not treating it as, an, uh, as a COVID patient. But thank you, add, thank you for your question. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Just add also um, uh, for Dr. Musa, uh, there is a lot of opportunity for research uh, for residents, graduate students, medical students, fellows uh, into some of these long-term effects of COVID. And you know, many of you can make a, an important contribution along with nurses joining you in the research uh, to documenting uh, the experience of these patients with these long, long-term, long-haul COVID and the side effects and what treatments work for them. Um, so there's room, and there's also room for nurses unions and for uh, medical associations also to promote research and to advocate uh, for better treatment, for psychiatric treatment and medical treatment uh, for these long-term patients. So there's a lot of room to make a difference here, you know, but through, through your organizations and through your associations. Thank you, Tim. Um, let me call on Mary Turner next, speaking of unions. Mary is the president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. So Mary, you wanna share right. your thoughts with us, please? Yes, thank you. Um, as you say, I'm president of Minnesota Nurses Association, but I always say more importantly, I am also a COVID ICU nurse at North Memorial Medical Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. And I'll be very honest with you, Nurse T. Um, when I agreed to be on this panel, um, they were very kind at the East Side Freedom Library to rush it to me because I was gonna read it on my vacation on the plane. But I'll tell you what, I held off doing that. And I read it the other day at four in the morning and I, it happened what I knew would happen. I was nodding my head and crying all the way through the book because each and every page I was reliving on my floor. Now, granted, we had, we had more resources. We at least had all of our rooms converted to negative pressure. I kept waiting in the book for you to say, yes, they finally changed all the rooms to negative pressure and they never seemed to. And that would be my first question. Do you have the negative pressure rooms yet? No, no, we don't. Still right. none. Right, but I remember the day, the very first day I came to work that first weekend and, and a young nurse running up to me and saying, Mary, Mary, did you hear? We're all being given one N95 and we're told that we need to wear it. 
till it disintegrates off of our faces. And I saw such fear in all of their eyes and all these young nurses who would, this is not what they were taught in nursing school about isolation precautions. And they, and the next thing she says is, Mary, how will I go home to my children in the morning? I'm afraid to go home to my children. And I, this is the very story that I, that I actually told on national news, because I don't know if you guys know, but I'm on the COVID, federal COVID um, task force. Biden, President Biden personally, I've, I've met him and I, he personally um, chose me to be on this task force. And this, this is gonna frustrate the heck out of you, Nurse T. So right now, um, this month, the topic is mental health issues that have arose because of the pandemic. And I have actually had to convince people, well, what does lack of personal protective equipment have to do with the mental health, um, the mental health of the healthcare workers? I said, you're kidding, right? And I said, do you remember the story that I said at the very first meeting the nat when we we're all sworn in? Did, do you remember the story I told you about the young nurse who said, how, how am I going to go home because I don't feel protected? And frankly, as a labor leader, I have been on the front, not only the nurses, but I have been at multiple, multiple events, pickets and rallies and, and news conferences and forums of all, all walks of life of the front care of the frontline workers. And I've heard stories in multiple languages about how we don't feel safe and all the stress that is caused from not feeling safe at work. And the other thing is I, I really had to chuckle when you cited that very first day when your uh, infectious disease person comes and tries to tell you that it's droplet precautions because tomorrow we will be having our third national meeting and in that our recommendations and believe me we have had to fight for it we are going to establish that it, this is airborne this is an airborne virus and for a lot of reasons mainly economic nobody wants to admit that it's an airborne virus and i remember and i said to the group yesterday because they're like are you sure we can say this and i cited your book I'm so glad I had read it. Thank I said, you. I cited your book and I said, because I remember you saying in there when they told you as contact, you guys turned to this infectious disease person and said, you're kidding, right? Yeah. Everything in us tells us this is airborne, just like measles, tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. and, and what I personally resented, and I know I'm over time here because you, mm -hmm. you know your agenda, but what I most resented through this whole time because not only as a, a nurse on the floor, but being in all the conversations with the administration, I resented them coming to us time and time, treating us like we were morons, trying to yeah. convince us that because of the supply issue, that wearing a N95 for 10 whole shifts is just fine. Mm -hmm. That this is droplet and treating us like we're idiots. That is what I resented the most. I lost all respect. I'm sorry, but I lost all respect for the CDC this past year because they just, it was being, I, I, that's all I'm going to say. But I, I thank you for 
Um, but I was, I was doing a little bit of my own PTSD and you are absolutely right that that yeah. is a very real, it is a very real thing. In fact, I was on with one of my subcommittees and I was listening to little Vincent. He's a student who's on the task force and he was describing his relatives that are working in the field. And I, all of a sudden I started shaking and crying. I had to turn my video off. And when I was able to come back on, I said to the fellows, I said, what you just witnessed me on the camera here on the Zoom call, that's what I'm talking about. That's an example of PTSD that we will live with for years to come. Mary, can, can I thank you so much, really from the bottom of my heart for your, your just your, your honest, raw uh, response to the book, because this is why I wanted to help Misty tell her story, because uh, it not only brings us up, but it also honors you. It affirms you, you know, it yes. affirms who you are and what you did. And, you know, not just the CDC, but the hospital administrators, the politicians, the corporate mm -hmm. leaders, there's a lot of sexism, you know, and they're saying, well, you're a nurse. You don't know anything because it's a woman's right. occupation. I think that's right. a big part of it. And one last thing. Um, I think that Nurse T's, I'm, I'm, I'm really delighted that you quoted Nurse T's book in one of your meetings with some, some of these politicians and all. Yeah. I, I would love to get this book to senators, Congress, you know, people in power. Let them read this book and see the raw deal. It, maybe it'll make an impression, but I, I, if there's any way that you know that I can get these books, I'll give them to them. I'm, I, you know, we're not making money. You know, we want to make an impression on them of, what mm -hmm. we did, nurses, aides, orderlies, clerks, dietary aides, serving the food. They were at risk every, every day, every night. Right. We want to bring the story to them. So if you have any suggestions, and we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to be in contact afterward. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. So I just wanted to jump in and say that I'm struck and, and given the, the kind of purpose of the Eastside Freedom Library, that we're about the production of knowledge, not just accessing knowledge from the books on our shelves, but the production of knowledge. And the idea that knowledge is produced collectively. And so the orderlies and the dietary aides and the housekeepers and the nurses' aides and the LPNs and the RNs and the doctors all have a piece of the, of the truth. And if we can have a system where they can share that knowledge with each other and be part of a culture that encourages them to listen to each other and share that knowledge with each other, we will be on our way towards solutions and, and not just validating the criticisms that, that people have. So I think that, that there's something very positive in what we're hearing tonight in how the pieces of the puzzle um, are held by the kind of people who are speaking with us tonight. And I wanna go back to Nurse T, um, that you made the choice that one of the ways you were gonna deal with the pieces of the puzzle that you had was by writing a book about it. And, and I don't know if, you thought about writing a book most of your life? No. How no. it was for you to, to become 
a writer and, and I, how that worked for you? Personally, I honestly think I, I still am not without Tim's guidance and advice, but you know, I didn't think this, this experience, honestly, really, I, in my lifetime, I never thought of writing a book or anything like that, but with this experience, I just know so many of us out there is feeling the same exact thing that I felt and being able to put it on paper and let people know what we, we have went through and gone through. It's, it's I, I, probably a, a personal healing process, but I know it's true exactly what everyone's saying. It's going to be a long ongoing emotion that we will always be experiencing. But um, I'm just really happy that Tim was able to help and support me and, and about the experiences that we went through. I wouldn't have been able to do it without Tim. <laughs> thank you. Um, and thank you. thank you, Tim. So I'd like to, Carla, if you can help us open the floor so the good audience can appear and, and people can ask questions or make comments. And I invite you to raise your hand physically or the mechanical raise your hand tool on Zoom. Um, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, we would love to get some more knowledge into the conversation. Well, I was just thinking, Peter, that, um, you know, when they talked about safety, you know, it's like, I'm a big one on Maslow's hierarchy of need, you know, like I talked about, you wouldn't go to war without your weapons, you know, and it's just, you know, and even if like the basic thing is patient care, you know, everything that we do impacts the patient and, and all the other coworkers who, as Tim keeps mentioning, there is no I in the world of the hospital. It's, mm. it's always us. And so, you know, just on that super fundamental level, there's just something terribly wrong. Yeah. Thank you. I agree with you. And a lot of the times the, the feelings that we had would, is they knew all the staff, especially the nurses had this feeling like of losing their position. They made you feel like you can lose your job if yeah. you even discuss that there's inadequate supplies or we're working with um, equipment that's been discontinued. Yeah. It's just unheard of. But we, we write emails, we send it to administration, we do all that, but how can you have a discontinued equipment when these um, companies come as like, we could always easily change it for you, but it's again, a budget issue. Mm -hmm. So they give you that fear, then you could lose your job. So that's the feeling across the board. Yeah, Nurse T, this is Mary Turner. That was where it was an advantage, me being president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. I at least got to fight some of those fights. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've been literally on the local news the whole year. And, you know, some of those stories were our county hospital that were being given N95s from 2002. Oh my God. You know, and that became a story. And so that did give me some satisfaction that I could, because unlike anyone else, I had the title that could protect me. You know what I mean? Because you're absolutely right. If you're just the regular staff nurse or whatever, and you don't have a title that can, because I would always say president of Minnesota Nurses Association. Um, so I, 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 am, I am thankful 
that I've been able to do some of that fighting in the media because you're absolutely right. None of you have that had that chance. You just don't. So Claire Martin has a comment or a question and has raised her mechanical hand to let <laughs> us know, please. Hello, everybody. Um, I am so glad that I joined the, the discussion tonight. Um, it, nurse T, your book was awesome and incredibly relatable. Um, I'm not a nurse, but I am a union member for my home care job. And um, we have had so many struggles trying to get PPE and just even trying to get people just to listen to us. Um, I'm part of a board that speaks to representatives of the state on our issues uh, regarding PPE and hazard pay and healthcare, and we don't get any benefits. So we struggled, um, again, like you were saying, just to feel safe. And the way you spoke about like the stress and just, you know, that dread, that feeling of dread, I mean, it really spoke to me. It was very it was very on point because um, I actually, Tim helped me uh, write a story about my experience. I ended up in the hospital uh, for mental health reasons. Um, and it was because of the stress of COVID. I have pre-existing conditions that were, you know, manageable, but then COVID hit and it's like, well, yeah, everything, everything you had before that you thought you had under control, but you know, you're kind of on the edge there. Well, COVID comes in and it just crashes into you and then makes everything worse. And so, you know, I, I wrote about that experience. Um, Tim was very helpful in encouraging me and helping me write it because it was very difficult, but it was also cathartic and it made me feel, you know, like, okay, I have this on the page now and I can move on from this and I can, you know, try to rebuild and try to face all these struggles um, just that COVID brought. Um, my client too, we were very, very concerned that she would get COVID and fall ill um, because we had a lack of PPE and all kinds of things. And I was scared of losing her because she's like family to me. Um, yeah, so it was it, just a whole lot. And with your book, especially at the end where they had all those um, strategies for helping you to calm down and things like that. I thought that was incredibly helpful. And I, I just think that people who read the book will really benefit from that and will benefit from your stories and just picturing what it's really like, because I think that we're all still kind of invisible. So I'm sorry, that was long winded, but I enjoyed the book thoroughly and um, just very poignant. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, Claire. If you thank you. Us, uh, your article or a link to your article, we would love to post it on the Eastside Freedom Library Facebook page so that people in our community will read it also. So between you and Tim, please send us your piece. And Tim, you wanted to also add something to Claire's story. Yeah, Claire, I just wanted to say that I cried when I read your story. It, it is a beautiful piece of writing. I, I loved uh, reading it and, and helping you, um, you know, revise it a little bit. And you might tell them how 1199 New England 
provided writing workshops for their members uh, about COVID. And it was very helpful for many of them to be able to write their story. And now, hopefully, I hope they're giving them to legislators and other people so they can hear about what you went through. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also trying to get it into my local library. They said that they would accept it and uh, hopefully, you know, feature it so that people will be drawn to the stories. I think it's so important. You know, we're the people on the ground and um, the stories need to be shared. And Tim really, he gave us a, a great way to do that. And I think it was cathartic, you know, not just for me, but for everybody, we all enjoyed it. Thank you, Tim. I, I find it inspiring to think about how doing the one thing of writing both provides healing for the person who's doing it and can have an impact on public policy. That, that there isn't like you need to write a policy statement and you need to write a memoir. You write one story and it has all of those potential impacts if we can get it into people's hands. So it's, it's a great reason to, to encourage writing. Renee, please. There's two things that have popped up. Um, when Mary had mentioned that, you know, I speak because I know that you can't speak up. And that really resonated. I wrote when I had to step back from the Freedom Library because our jobs started to get to be eight, nine, 10 hours, started to be working on weekends because you're fighting that invisible enemy somewhere. You don't know how to fight it, but you know that your grandpas and grandmas are really sick and the hospitals are had sent them back at some point. And um, I, I wrote down the thoughts and the experiences that I was having in this magnificent, majestic rant to <laughs> Peter and Beth because I needed somewhere to get it out that wasn't just my family. And it landed on good ears. And then you did say, can we post this? But at the time, I didn't have that feeling of if I say what's really going on or if I share how I feel about what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing here with all of this and that I know it's not right, I'm going to lose my job. And I can't do that right now because my daughter takes immunosuppressive drugs every six weeks. And this is not good. I need to stay quiet. I need to stay under the radar. And, but boy, it really felt good to write it at the time. And even now, after all of what we've experienced, there is still that little piece of is it, I don't know if it's survivor guilt or if it's a little bit of shame or what it is, but there is this hesitancy to still talk about it. Or maybe it's just the inability to process emotions, but that's there. And that's why I'm so thankful that Mary is there. And it sounds like you're doing a heck of a job too, Mary. Thank you. And thank you, Nurse T for putting to words for us. Thank you. Sarah. Sarah, could I slot in just to reply to that? Totally. Here we go right ahead. Uh, um, and here was the really, there was some frustration in the sense that at the beginning, especially last, you know, like the beginning months, I felt like I was the lone soldier 
in letting people know. There was one news story that I literally, because people were like, well, we've got plenty of PPE now. And I had to literally in that news story and the reporter did a great job. I had to explain the doc will appreciate this. And Mary T, how many people it took to turn somebody onto their prone position? because that was the only way they're going to breathe and how that took seven people. So that yes. took seven pairs of gloves, seven gowns, seven masks, seven, you know what I mean? For one moment in time to demonstrate. And it was so frustrating because here in, in Minnesota, the hospitals did not jump in and start to tell the story till like the following October or November. <laughs> Reporters would plead with me, can you just take photos? Yeah, that's the fastest way for me to get fired. You know what I mean? And they were no help. And I, I truly believe that if, if they would have told the story at the very beginning, people would have believed. But they didn't do that. Yeah. And I, I would often say, is anyone listening to me? Is anyone listening to me? But I just kept plugging away. But they could have done a better job. Thank you. Sarah Absolutely. Lake? Uh, so a couple of things that came up. I just did a quick check. Um, there's a book that my partner read, um, who's a lot more level-headed than I am. <laughs> Having had my union background, I just you know had to turn into a fighter or give up. And um, But this woman, Sherry Fink, who's an MD, and she wrote an incredible book called Five Days at Memorial Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. And let me tell you, those corporations just sold. And, you know, we know the story at the end, you know, very professional people were using euthanasia in their, in, in the absolute best sense of, you know, as opposed to, you know, nurse T talks about smelling the rotten bodies. It's like, it was bad. It was beyond. And decisions were made that led absolutely to no other point than, you know, they didn't want to spend a dime. You know, the store, I mean, you know, Helen slogged through it and, you know, great, you know, like, whoa, you know, I got about 20 page in and I can't even tell you what was happening to my heart rate and blood pressure. But, you know, the point is that we don't have a public health system in this country, you know, and I came from Canada, you know, I was born in the States, raised in Canada, and we do have a public health system. Now, you know, the flip side is, you know, they did a great job with contact tracing and testing and PPE, and now they have no vaccines because they're not in bed with the pharmaceuticals, you know, like, so there's the end of the story, not so great. You know, we just had to fast forward to get to the vaccines, unfortunately, you know, almost 600,000 dead people later. But, you know, I mean, national nurses, again, I'm just gonna do a call out, you know, hospitals chose, to not prepare for this. Concretely, we knew what was happening in China. And the second thing is, and read this Sherry Fink, it's like, there is no disaster or emergency preparedness in the American hospital systems. Why? Because it costs money. It's so simple. And people will always be expendable, whether they're soldiers or nurses or housekeepers you know, any be, anybody other than, you know, Elon Musk, you know, Mr. Gazillionaire, you know, I'm not picking on him. I'm just saying, we all know the rules here, you know, and it's so painful as a provider, which is why Mary cries all the time. You know, it's like, you know, like it's, of course we're ripped apart, 
you know, and then as a nurse to go in there and put on that emotional armor so that we're not crying all day long and bear up under the bullshit of the employer, you know, in a country where, you know, human rights doesn't apply, apply to unions, you know, we're not going to have unions, you know, we'll kill people, we'll kill people rather than have a union. You know, that is the history of America. You know, and I hate to be, you know, so whipped up, but I am whipped up. I mean, that's why I'm on the board of the Eastside Freedom Library because some little radical lefty organization that's trying to make a difference. You know, and thank God for Nurse T and Tim, you know, write it down. Who cares if it's cute? Yeah, you gotta be anonymous, that's not great, but we're going to battle every day, people. Thank you, Sarah. I wonder, Mary, in the conversations that you're part of going on in the highest echelons of, of the government, we're having a conversation nationally now about what is infrastructure? Is infrastructure more than highways and bridges? Are people in that circle, Mary, making the case that healthcare is part of infrastructure and that some of this money that President Biden wants to get into the pipeline could come and be able to do some of the things that some of you are talking about being needed tonight? Right, so there's four subcommittees and I'm on two of them. I am on healthcare access and quality and then the other one is structural drivers and xenophobia. And then there's a data and research one, which I was like, oh, that's a yawner. You know, and then the other one is communication. But the one, the structural drivers, that's where we address, okay, so something so simple as transportation, how that is, um, how that creates unequitable situations for people. So in that sense, that's where we hit the homelessness, uh, the transportation system that's not adequate, et cetera, is in those structural drivers, uh, the food deserts, um, the hospital, you know, and the one thing that I'm starting to try to beat the drum on is how, because here, in, as you guys know, in St. Paul, Bethesda and St. Joe's about to close and where are they closing them? right down there where, oh, gee, what's right across the street? St. Uh, Catholic Charities, Catholic Charity to the homeless, you know? I, and, and, this, and, and so not only inner city closing their hospitals and clinics, but the rural, rural uh, America, where town after town. The, so anyway, this is where we do talk about this. Now, there's, there's some hope and that hope is President Biden. We were tomorrow, we are going to proudly say, and you think this is easy to say and to get across to people, that healthcare is a human right. I can't tell you how much resistance there is to that, but he said it last night. So now that's gonna give us courage tomorrow to say it. But I have to just close with one little thing. So we have uh, little Vincent is our 18 year old from Florida who's on there. He represents the youth. And I told my other fellow people, 
And when we're talking about healthcare as a human right for the first time and getting pushback from different people, when Vincent mentioned it, I pointed out, I said, when Vincent mentioned healthcare as a human right, guys, he's the future. It's his future that we're building here. And when he said healthcare is a human right, I saw in his face and his voice, well, of course. I said to the rest of us, the rest of us on this call are on our way out here. And of course, they're like, well, is that a, is that a clinical assessment? I said, no, my point being that in, in, in Vincent's world and in the world of the young, of course, it's a human right. It's a no-brainer. But you cannot believe the forces of evil, and I say evil, that are fighting against such a basic concept. And, and because if you declare that, then everybody needs to get health care. You get it? And that's where you don't want. That's why they don't want those words mentioned. That's why they don't want airborne, airborne mentioned. Right, Nurse T? Am I right? Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I don't want to mention the words because words have power, Timothy, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. And I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm very grateful for what our next month is going to be personal protective equipment. No, no, no. It's going to be, um, it's going to be hitting more on those structural drivers and uh, discrimination and, and getting into the xenophobia. And then the next month after that is going to be personal protective equipment. Um, you know what I mean? So we have, we have um, the first was vaccine hesitancy or, mm. um, and, and all of our recommendations, they're called interim recommendations right now. They give they and we were concerned. It's like, well, are we going to wait till the end? No, President Biden gets these as we come up with them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I feel very grateful to be on that. And I'm the only frontline worker wow. on there. I'm the only, I'm the only frontline worker. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're there, Mary. Um, let me do, Najaha wants to jump in, please. Yeah, thank you. I, Mary, I think you hit the nail on the head um, what, with, with what you're working on with the uh, task force. Um, I just wanted to point out that I, I think transportation especially is important um, with respect to the structural uh, in, inequities, especially in the Twin Cities. And I will say that one of the reasons why I joined the St. Joseph's uh, Hospital Family Medicine Residency Program is for that specific reason that they have shut down the hospital and moved the hospital to Woodbury, uh, where very few of the patients have access to right now. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to working with the legislature and also with you know, many providers and uh, stakeholders to provide the structure that's necessary for those patients to have access and that's transportation. Um, and so I just wanted to say, I, I look forward to collaborating with you all who are so passionate about this topic um, and look forward to uh, working together to, uh, you know, make healthcare a right, a reality. Uh, for, for all of our patients. Um, and with that, I do have to step out to break my fast as I've been passing for the month of Ramadan. And I just want to say thank you so much for writing this work that's so important and timely. Um, and thank you all for such insightful discussions. And, and um, hopefully we can um, touch base again. Thank you, Jaha. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you. 
So Nurse T, we're about at the end of our time. Would you like to make any sort of closing remarks? Um, I just want to thank everyone. Um, I, everything you, everyone has mentioned uh, has really touched me and knowing that we all speak the same language and the same experience. And I'm, I'm really, really thankful to be able to speak in this forum. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. Thank you for, for writing the book to make it possible for us to have this conversation tonight. And hopefully more people will be reading the book and having similar conversations. So I, I want to thank you all for joining us. I especially want to thank Carla for her work making the technology work. Um, there will be an easily accessible video on our YouTube page soon so that Mary, if you want to share it with your fellow task force members or any of you want to share it with your children, grandchildren, neighbors, we will have the video ready for you to do that with. So thank you all very, very much. It's It's been a while since I've seen some of you and it's great to see you. Tim, thank you so much for your work. Um, so valuable, so important. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Peter. All right. Good night, all. Take good care of yourselves. We'll see good night. You.